Lord our God, as we come now to think about these words written so long ago, we ask that you would minister to us through them, that they would be clear and effective to us, so that you would achieve your purposes in our lives through them, and that we would see more of Christ today, that the power of the Lord would move in this place. And we pray in his name. Amen. Um, I have a friend who is a little bit older than me, but um, she is one of the most fascinating people I know. Um, I'm going to call her Alison. It's not her real name. But she's originally from Romania, and she was adopted by her parents who live here in Northern Ireland when she was about one year old. She was born in really difficult circumstances in rural Romania. Her dad wasn't around. Her birth mother wasn't really able to look after her, so she ended up in a children's home. Uh, and this couple from Newton Abbey, they were doing some work out there. They saw this child in great need. They just fell in love with her uh, and they adopted her and they brought her home and they raised her here in Northern Ireland. And I have to confess that when I first heard Alison's story, when I was just a teenager, um, I made a lot of assumptions about her, which turned out to be completely wrong. I mean, I obviously realized that she had the first year of her life in Romania in very difficult circumstances, but I assumed that because her parents got her at quite an early age, that her time in Romania really wouldn't have had that much of an impact on her. But as I got to know her better, I realized that I was very badly mistaken. Alison had been neglected terribly during the first year of her life. And, you know, I have three kids, and all they do in the first year is, you know, they cry, they drink milk, they do things in their nappy that you have to clean up after them. You know, you just kind of have to get through that time to the point where they can interact with you, and you can actually start to teach them stuff. But I'm, I'm badly mistaken. Alison's parents had to work really hard to get her to play with them, never mind other kids. And really, she was in the middle of primary school before they saw any kind of normality in her social interactions. And it shouldn't be surprising, but children develop more socially in the first year of their lives than at any other time. The, the skin contact and eye contact that they get, it's all crucial to their development. Babies develop more intellectually in the first year of their life than at any other time. So far from nappies and milk and crying being all there is, the baby stage is arguably the most important in terms of a person's prospects in life. Not whether they do the, the transfer test or whether they go to university or how they do in their GCSEs, but how they're cared for when they're little tiny newborn babies. Uh, and researchers are becoming more and more convinced of this. And perhaps as a society, we need to value more those who care for our youngest children. It took Alison years to recover socially from the neglect she'd suffered as a baby. And sadly, she's never going to be physically free of the consequences of that neglect. Now, why am I telling you about my friend? Well, the reason is that I think there's a parallel between the new life a little baby has and the need to nurture and care for that life and the new life that Christians have when they're born again and when they're, they're baby believers, if you like, when they start to follow Jesus. You maybe know the parable of the sower and the seed and you know that the plant springs up without the proper care in shallow soil, then the heat of the sun will cause it to wilt. The seed needs to be planted in good soil and cultivated well. 
And if you've been tracking through with us in our series in in 1 Thessalonians, you'll know that these believers Paul was writing to were brand new Christians. We spent some time thinking about them together. Uh, We looked at the book of Acts where Paul preached and, and planted this church, but he faced so much opposition that on the day he preached, he had to leave at nighttime under cover of darkness. And so he wrote to the church to encourage them and to correct some ideas that they had wrong about the end of the world and about Jesus returning. And you'll maybe remember some of them thought that Jesus was gonna come back straight away. And so some of them quit their jobs because of this. And, And Paul says, look, you need to get back to work. Jesus is gonna come. We don't know when, it'll be like a thief in the nighttime. He puts these brand new Christians straight on a few things and he's encouraging them. He encourages them about those who've died trusting in Jesus. He encourages them for praying regularly and rejoicing in the Lord. We thought about that together last week. But now we're in 2 Thessalonians and we find Paul writing to these Christians again. But unlike some other of Paul's letters like the Corinthians or Timothy where Paul writes twice, these Thessalonian letters are unique because the church historians tell us that there was probably only about six months passed between the two letters being written. So he's still writing to brand new Christians. And I think this is really important because when we read the book of Acts, there are little details in there that would be easy to skip over and miss. But Paul normally doesn't spend such a short time with new believers. We're told he spent a long time with the church in Syria. We're told that he spent a year and a half in Corinth with the church he planted there. He spoke in the synagogue in Ephesus for three months before he faced trouble and decided to move on. So his short time in Thessalonica understandably made him very anxious for these brand new baby Christians. He knew they needed looked after. Um, He knew that they were like the seed in shallow soil, that these people were in danger. Even in what we read today in verse four, we read that they were facing persecution and trials. So Paul writes to this church community twice in quick succession because he knows that this is a critical stage for them, much like the newborn baby. If they're not cared for now, it's going to impact them negatively in the long term. So as we walk through uh, this passage together this morning, Paul does three things. Firstly, after he introduces himself and Silas and Timothy, he encourages them by telling them what God is doing. It's maybe not immediately obvious to us that that's what he's doing, but what he's doing is he's showing them how God is answering prayer. Back in his first letter in chapter 3 and verse 12, he prays for them. He says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So he's praying that their love is going to increase, that their hearts would be strengthened, that their faith would be bolstered bolstered. And so the first thing Paul does in his second letter is he says that that prayer has been answered. In chapter 1 verse 3 he says we ought always to thank God for you brothers and rightly so because your faith is growing more and more and the love everyone has, every one of you has for each other is increasing. One of the most common things for um, anybody um, whether they've been a Christian for a short time or a long time, uh, if they're going through a hard time, they might want to ask, well, where's God in all of this? What is God doing 
If we're maybe a bit more mature in the faith, we might be inclined to believe that God has a purpose in it. But it's natural for us to ask, God, what are you doing in all this? Why am I facing this? And so Paul is encouraging these new Christians, you know I've been praying for you. I told you I was praying for you, and I told you what I was praying for you, that your love would increase and that your hearts would be made strong. And you can see that it's happening. He says in verse 4, we boast about you among the other churches. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. So Paul encourages them by showing them that God is working among them and answering prayer. And then secondly, he begins to teach them. Um, If we look together at verse 5, Paul says, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give you relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Now, for any new Christian, they're going to have these questions, aren't they? Why am I going through this? And and they want to know why they're having such a hard time. This is the best news I've ever heard, so why is it that everybody's giving me such a hard time for it? I was completely overwhelmed by grace when I found Jesus, so why now do I struggle to to carve out time to talk with him and, and read his word day by day? Why am I still tempted to sin? And all of these questions essentially relate to the spiritual warfare that all Christians face from the moment they're converted. That's the language Paul uses elsewhere in Ephesians 6. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so he tells them to put on the full armor of God. I suspect that these Thessalonian Christians might have been wondering why they were facing so much opposition. And so Paul wants to teach them. And he says it's because of this spiritual warfare. But there's also a hint in this, and I'm sure you picked it up, that the Thessalonians must have been wondering about this whole notion of hell. And they might well have been asking, well, if God is so good and if God has saved us, how can a good God like that send people to hell. And so Paul points to their circumstances and he says, look, these people are completely against you. You can see that. They're completely against God and he is just. This is all evidence that he is right in his judgment. Maybe some of us today have similar reservations about hell. Maybe we wonder how a God who is full of grace and mercy and love could ever send people there. But This is something that we can't brush under the carpet. God is a God of justice. And we're going to be singing later about amazing grace. And amazing grace isn't actually all that amazing until we realize that we deserved hell. If we think that we kind of just didn't make it or that we were doing okay, but we we just needed to fix that part of our lives, get our relationship with God right, because that's what good people do, well, then we haven't understood God's grace. We all fell short of his glory. We all rebelled against God. And the amazing thing about grace is that in deserving hell, having lived in a way that was completely opposed to God, and he was just and right in sending us to hell, but instead he put that punishment on Jesus if we turn and put our trust in him.
And so God is still just. He still punished the sin in Jesus. And that is the gift of grace. And those who don't trust in Jesus are those who have spurned God's greatest gift and who remain in opposition to him. Now, whether we can get our heads around that or not, Paul says God is just. God is the only judge. Now, Paul uses their persecution as an example. He says, look, you can see that these people are against God and deserving of hell. But God's judgment is just anyway. Ultimately, it doesn't depend on whether we understand it or not. Paul very plainly says in verse 6, God is just, no matter what we think. And so Paul goes on, um, and it's no wonder he didn't give them all this in his first letter because um, it's pretty heavy going. Back then, he was content simply to say that, look, the Lord will return, the dead in Christ will rise, uh, and those of us who are still alive will go up and meet him in the air as he returns to earth for the judgment. But here he goes on to describe what will happen for those who are opposed to God. Again, verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. God is just, he says. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. You just want me to use this? Yeah. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Now, I, I said after I read our reading earlier that it wasn't exactly light reading, and this is, this is fairly heavy going, and it's a very harrowing picture of everlasting destruction. Um, but these words in particular have caused some controversy uh, in the church, and it's worth just taking a moment to clarify um, what it says here, because um, the NIV and most of our translations say that they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. But in Revelation chapter 14, it says that we won't be shut out or that those people won't be shut out from his presence. It says that the one who rejects God will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. So there seems to be like a bit of a contradiction here, um, but it's not. And I'll explain um, how. If we were reading this in the original language in Greek, what, what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians is, not so much that those people will be shut out from his presence, but will be shut out from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And humanly speaking, to be in front of somebody's face, yes, is to be in their presence. Um, but here it's slightly different. We're, we were talking about little babies earlier, I was, and in church when we baptize a little baby, we sing words of blessing, don't we? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance, his face upon you and give you peace. So to, to know the face of the Lord is to know his blessing. It's a biblical picture of blessing. And, and that's why it's so special that for those of us who believe, we look forward one day to seeing our Lord face to face. We're going to know his immense blessing. 
But for those who are, are cast out into utter darkness, the place that Jesus describes as a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, this picture of hell, it's not that people get to escape the presence of the Lord, because if that were true, hell wouldn't be a, a scary place at all. That would actually be an escape. But it's precisely because the Lord is there. But metaphorically, he's turned his face away. He's removed his blessing and his offer of grace for those who have turned it down, even though he's held it out to them so long. And then all that is left behind is wrath and justice. And that is a, a terrible prospect. But the fact that it is so is evidence of the great salvation that we have. And that's why Paul says this. Remember, he's not saying this to scare the Thessalonians. They're Christians. He actually says it in the context of encouraging them. You're facing great opposition, but the fact that you are shows that God's judgment is right and that you're going to get through this because the battle you're facing is one that you're on the winning side of. And so that's why then thirdly, Paul prays in the light of this confidence. We see it there in verses 11 and 12. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice how he prays there? He doesn't pray that the persecution would stop. He's not praying that the Thessalonians would be taken out of the difficult situations they're facing. He prays that God's will would be done, that he would fulfill his purposes in them, and that the things that are of their faith would succeed, and that Jesus and the Thessalonians would be glorified in each other. I love that little quote that Marty shared last week from the Shorter Catechism, although just tweaked slightly by John Piper, that man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Paul isn't praying that the hardships would stop, but he's praying that these Christians in the face of hardship would find real joy in the Lord, that Jesus would be glorified in them and they in him. This is Paul's model for caring for and nurturing new believers. So I suppose this morning what I want to look at is in light of these things, showing new believers that God is at work among them, encouraging them, teaching them, praying for them. Well, how do we need to respond then? How should we care for those who are young in the faith? Well, I think the, the first thing that we need to do is to make new believers a priority. Whether that's somebody who's recently come to faith or whether it's our children, it's so important that we nurture them in the faith. When it comes to our children, um, this is one of the reasons that we as Presbyterians baptize our children. Um, in the book of Acts, we see, the whole, we see whole families baptized at once. So the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 would be one example. When he comes to faith, his whole family, we're told, is immediately baptized. And this isn't saying that everyone else in his family and his children were immediately Christians. They may not have been. But what was happening was that now that the jailer was a Christian, well, he was going to introduce his children to the faith and nurture them in it and share the good news in the hope that they would also come to faith. Just like under the old covenant where circumcision was given as a sign to people irrespective of how they would grow up and whether they would grow up to obey the Lord and his commandments, 
So in Jesus, in the new covenant, people are given the sign that they've been washed and saved from sin, and their children are given that sign too. And so when we do that as a church family, it's right that um, we do so with vows that say we'll bring up our children in the Lord. Now, I understand that approaching this subject this morning might be painful for some of us because maybe some of us have children who have wandered off in another direction. And obviously we do want to pray for our children who've not yet owned the faith for themselves yet. But ultimately, whether they actually come to faith or not isn't something that we need to carry a huge burden of guilt about because that's the Holy Spirit's work. It's not our work. It's the Lord's to do. But what we are responsible for is caring for them and nurturing them in the faith. You know, we, we can't think of what goes on across the way in Shine or in any of our other youth organizations as, as unimportant or, or just kind of minding the children while we get on with the important stuff in here. It, it's so vital that our children learn about Jesus and nothing could be more important than nurturing their faith. I suppose like Paul, we need to talk to them about what God is doing. This is an incredibly biblical principle. If you read through um, Exodus and Deuteronomy, we read words from Exodus earlier. When God delivered the people from Egypt, on several occasions, God says to his people, when your children ask you, why are you doing this? Why are you celebrating the Passover? You shall say to them, we do this because of what the Lord has done for us. And the people are told again and again to talk to their children about God's laws. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Our faith is meant to be something that's just on our lips, just part of conversation. And it doesn't mean you have to have answers to difficult theological questions. You just have to talk about it. I'm no expert at it, but at the moment I'm having quite a lot of conversation, uh, conversations with my girls about the fact we're probably moving church sometime soon. Um, and I say to them, you know, I'm the assistant minister, but now I'm probably going to be going and be the minister somewhere, and God's going to show us where that is, and I'm talking to churches, they're talking to me, they're listening to me, and hopefully at some stage one of them will come and say that they want me to be their minister. And that's God showing us where he wants us to go. Or sometimes if I read something in my own Bible readings that, that I know is a story that they will know about, I talk to them about it. We pray together before they go into school. We, we pray together before they go to bed. And none of it looks very fancy. Uh, in fact, as we're running late to school and uh, I'm driving, I keep my eyes open and, and we pray as we're, as we're speeding down uh, the straight road between Ballinure and Strait. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to look like anything special. Or maybe for you, you don't have children around, but maybe you need to encourage somebody who's new to the faith here in church. I love our discipleship groups because they range from people who are brand new Christians uh, right through to those who've been following Jesus for decades. Maybe you could do that, or, or maybe more informally, you could help a new believer. We need to talk to our children and, and to new converts and just to one another in general about the things that God is doing, because that's such a help and such an encouragement. We also need to uh, equip them and to teach them. Again, as a parent, this is something that actually uh, scares me to a certain extent because some of the issues that my children are going to face are going to be difficult. 
Um, I heard recently someone whose uh, daughter is seven years old and uh, they came home and said, uh, Mommy, my friend was telling me that it's okay for two women to get married or two men. And whilst they're obviously too young to understand the complexities of that debate, we, we need to be engaging with our kids about all sorts of issues, whether it's sexuality or, or the dangers of what they might face online or whatever it is, because if we don't teach them, somebody else will. And it's such a formative time in their lives. The same is true with adult believers, new believers. We can't just sort of sidestep the issues that we think we might have trouble with um, in case it scares them off. I mean, Paul talks about hell here. He doesn't sidestep the issue. Maybe some of the problem here is that we don't really feel equipped to talk about some of those things. Well, then we need to get help, whether that's by being informed ourselves or, or whether that's bringing in a Christian friend who can help. Because that shows the new believer or your child that it's okay not to have all the answers as well. And it's okay to talk about this stuff. And it's okay for Christians to wrestle with these issues. Paul doesn't sidestep the issue of hell and the awful reality that it is. And so we shouldn't either. You know, as a church, as people reaching out, as people who are nurturing new believers, we, we actually sell them short if we water down the message about hell. We cheapen grace. Grace doesn't seem that amazing if grace isn't necessary. We need to be serious about hell and we need to not avoid topics that are difficult because if we don't nurture our children or new believers, then they're not gonna be clear about these things. And of course, we need to pray as well. We need to pray for their spiritual warfare. There's nothing more powerful you can do for a new believer than to pray for them. Uh, I have a friend, uh, he's a ministry colleague, he's retired, he's not far off his 80th birthday, um, but he was telling me um, a little while ago that he had two aunts who prayed for him every day from the day that they knew he was in his mum's tummy, uh, and he went pretty far away from the faith at a time in his life, but God answered those prayers. Yes, we do want to pray for protection. But the reality is that God, in his sovereignty, will use us in very difficult scenarios. He won't take us out of the world, but he will use us to achieve his purposes in the world. So whether you're here this morning and you're new to the faith, or even if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's so tempting to see things the way the world does, that the world's moving on, or that the church is irrelevant or out of date or losing the battle. But this morning we're encouraged because God's word reminds us that the power of the gospel and the power in the Bible, the power of the gospel in the Bible proves to be true time and time again. God is at work in us and we can see the evidence of it. God is building his church all over the world. God does increase our love for Jesus and he does strengthen our faith. The gospel is true. And one day Jesus the judge will return and put everything right. So I suppose the question I want to leave you with this morning is who is God calling you to nurture today? Who could you encourage today? Who could you talk to about how the Lord is working in your life? Or how can you see God working in their life? And who could you pray for today that they would know the joy of the Lord more and more? Let's pray together. Father, we've heard from your word, and so now we pray that you would help us to live in light of your truth. Help us to help each other. Help us to encourage and build one another up 
And may you continue to work in us, whether we've just begun our walk with you or whether we've been following you for a long time. And may we be amazed at what you're doing in our lives. And may we never lose sight of our Lord and Saviour Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.